Well, good morning, friends. As you now know from that beautiful reading by Emily, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. So I want to invite you, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, to take one of the Bibles that you should see in front of you on the back of the pew or the seat where you're sitting. We've provided those for those of you who don't have Bibles. We'd love for you to take it for it to be our gift to you this morning if you don't own a copy of the Bible. And it'll be extra helpful to you for what we're going to do together for the next little bit of our time. To, to have so that you can, uh, so you can track with me as I refer to the high points we're going to consider together this morning. You'll find this morning's passage on page 866 if you're using one of those, one of those pew Bibles. Uh, a few years ago, I watched the uh, Aaron Sorkin movie about the rise of Facebook. This movie called The Social Network. Probably a bunch of you guys watched it. It was a big hit at the time. And like all other Aaron Sorkin movies, super fast-paced. People talking 90 to nothing, using a vocabulary range about twice as wide as anybody I know. Uh, it was, it was fast-moving. It was, it was intense. It was entertaining. It was a little bit highfalutin, but overall, you know, a, a great movie. I, I can't speak to the historical accuracy of this movie, but the one thing that struck me most about it, the thing I still remember a few years later, whether this is true to the, to the rise of Facebook or not, at the heart of the movie and its account of this social network, the rocket fuel that was ignited to send this, this new platform up into space, changing the world forever, was the exclusivity of friendship groups. The fact that on Facebook, you've got friends. You've got people who are inside and people who are outside. The fact that not everybody counts as a friend was essential to its success. It strikes me that as we've begun to see Luke unfold the portrait of the earliest Christians of the similarly meteoric rise of this ancient movement, a movement that would, that would change the world in a more fundamental way than even Facebook has. The rocket fuel that took this movement off the ground was exactly the opposite. Not an exclusivity that, that some could get in on while others had no shot, but an offer of hope and redemption made to anyone from anywhere. This movement from the very beginning of its life, from its earliest days, has been focused on, on expansion, on reaching more and more people, on, on crossing all sorts of boundaries that have limited the reach of other groups. Not, not every religion aims for this. Christianity does from the very beginning. It aims to go to the ends of the earth, Jesus said at the beginning of this story. We've been watching this this movement progressed over the past few weeks as the gospel has spread from Jewish cities and Jewish people, the Gentiles around Judea, and, and has now begun to spread to other parts of the world. And yet, at the same time that this, that this movement is open access, at the same time that the doors are thrown wide and people are welcomed in, come, please come, there is still an inside and an outside to this religion. It may be open access, but not everyone has come in. At the heart of Christianity is a conviction that there is an inside where there is hope and safety. An inside defined by who Jesus is to you and whether you want what he offers. And an outside 
where you stand on your own, which means that ultimately you fall. It's the confluence of these two things, a wide open offer to anyone from anywhere to get in on what Jesus is doing and a conviction that if you're not in on it, you're on your own out there that makes Christianity what some have called a fundamentally missionary religion. You've got to get in here with us, and you can be in here with us. Come, please. The Christians here in Acts, they saw themselves as on the inside of what you might think of as a, as a concrete, steel-reinforced storm shelter with a storm bearing down. We're in here. There's room. Anyone who wants in can, can fit with us. So, so come, by all means come, but as long as you're out there, You're facing hurricane winds you can't possibly survive. The only way you get through this is to come in off the prairie where you're completely exposed and into the safety that Jesus has offered. Because there's only one way to be safe, because anyone from anywhere can get in on it, Christians have been missionaries from day one. And in this chapter, in Acts chapter 13, we get our look into the very first missionary journey. Here in these verses, we see Paul and Barnabas sent out to take the gospel into places where people didn't know that they could be safe in Christ. So that they would have the opportunity to come in to this shelter so they could survive the storm to come. What we want to do this morning, even though we have not nearly enough time to do justice to all the verses we're covering... What we want to do this morning is, is look for the main through line, for the major thread that ties these verses together so that we can learn about our mission from watching the church take up its mission for the very first time. And to follow that through line, what I want to do is introduce you to the three main characters in this first missionary journey. From each of the characters, we'll learn something crucial for our responsibility in this mission and for our encouragement to carry on the mission God has given to us. Three characters at the heart of this missionary journey will see the local church who sends its best. That's character number one. We'll see the ambassador who is willing to go. That's character number two. And finally, we'll see the Lord who's saving his people. That's character number three. First, the local church who sends its best. The first character on the scene in this first story told about the first missionary trip in the history of Christianity is, wait for it, the local church. Just, just like ours. Uh, this church was in Antioch. It's one of the places where a church was founded after, after things started getting rough for Christians in Jerusalem. Persecution started to heat up. Stephen, one of the earliest Christian leaders, was martyred and people fled taking the gospel with them to places like Antioch. Now, over a year, two years, not exactly sure how long, this church has taken root, and it's formed into a healthy and thriving local church. And from this point forward, this church will be known for its commitment to mission, not just in their city, but around the world. And I think Luke begins the story of the expansion of Christianity through missionary journeys with a local church so that we'll know that the mission always begins here. That the mission that we've been entrusted to begins with our local church buying into it. Now, let me show you where I'm getting this from what Luke tells us. Luke doesn't actually tell us very much about this particular local church other than where it was. He doesn't tell us how long it's been there, how big it was, what sort of life they shared together, any of the texture we might like to know about this church. He merely tells us 
that it was there. And then lists some of the remarkably diverse group of leaders that God had given to them. He gives us Barnabas. Uh, He talks about Simeon, who was called Niger, most likely because he had come from Africa and was dark-skinned. He tells us about Lucius, about Menaean, who had friends in high places. And and he talks about Saul, who we've met before in our story through Acts. I mean, for a fairly new church plant, that looks like a pretty deep bench. They had to be feeling pretty good about what God had given them so that they could continue to grow and to thrive. And then the Lord intervenes. Look with me at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, carrying on with the life they were so thankful to have been given, the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, as a local church pastor myself, who's been through the early years of a church plant, I'll be honest, I can't help but empathize with the loss of all of this to the sending church from Antioch. You know, I'm seeing myself and this group of leaders in Antioch thinking, this is two out of five of the guys who made the list. Now we're supposed to give them up. I mean, maybe there were more leaders than just this, but, but come on, another Barnabas? Another, another Saul? They, they, they didn't have another one of those. And Barnabas was so encouraging. One of the few things we know is that he was, he was known as the son of encouragement that he was so warm and pastoral that, that his thing was to connect people to one another. A local church needs people like that to thrive. You know, people who are kind of at the center of a web of relationships, who are doing their best to try to see that people connect to one another. You take one of those people out of a local church, there's a huge hole. Everybody who was connected to the church through them feels like this church is different now, now that they're not here. Barnabas, really? We got to lose him? And I bet they didn't have another teacher like Saul. I mean, his teaching stands for itself. It's changed the world. How can we build a church and and reach our city without this man's teaching to draw people in? Without his insights to shape our life together and help us grow? How can we do what God has told us to do as a church without these men? Surely it would be better for us to hang on to them get more healthy, grow a little bigger, gain more leaders to share the load, and then maybe sometime we'll send one of those second-tier guys out on the mission. Friends, it's, just, it's so easy to love your local church so much that its needs are all you can see. I, I'm, I'm just preaching to myself here. And that means that the people that you have at the center of your local church can seem irreplaceable to you. How could you be healthy without them? And that means, well, that means that the health of your church and the mission you know that you've got for the whole world compete with each other in your mind and heart as if in some sort of zero-sum game where for one to win, the other has to lose. But that's not how this church saw things. They knew better. They knew that their local church was part of, part of their purpose as a local church, rather, was, was to get the gospel to people who didn't have it yet. They knew that was going to mean cost to them. That was going to mean doing without people they didn't think they could do without. But they were willing to pay this cost. Friends, it matters 
It matters the way Luke tells this story. When the Spirit comes to call these men out to this larger work, he comes to the church and its leadership. He says to the church, set these guys apart. This isn't something direct between Paul and Barnabas and the Lord that they go off on their own because of something they heard from the Lord themselves. The church is the authority God put in place to send them. That's why the Spirit starts with the church. And it's because this is the job he's given us, the mission he's given us. It's always churches that send workers to places without the gospel. Now, now friends, on the one hand, I mean, the, the normal things we do in our life together as a church, what we're doing right now, celebrating communion, singing to the Lord, hearing from his word, having it taught to us, the, the normal discipleship we have in one another's lives week to week, day to day, all of that is the most fundamental thing we do to invest in people who will go. So our missionaries who go out from us are products of just the normal life of the church. That's true. But I think this, this text, the fact that Luke chose to start here, also reminds us that we have to be very intentional about pushing for new workers and for supporting the workers that God has raised up. That all of us are responsible for pushing in the ways we can for new workers to go and for supporting the workers that God has already given us. Friends, that means, that means you, if you're a member of our church. If you're a member of Edgeville Church, I wonder if you've ever considered the fact that God has made you responsible in our church's mission to the world. International missions is not the pet project of a select few. It's a calling that God has put on every one of us. Not all of us will take up that calling in the same way, but all of us have it, just like this church in Antioch did. How has this affected your prayer life, I wonder? And one of the main things I would encourage you to do to, as a member, to, take, to start with as, as your responsibility to our mission to the world is to pray regularly for unreached people groups. People like those that... Paul and Barnabas are about to go to, who, who until someone comes to them won't have any access to the hope that's available to them. They won't know that this storm shelter will hold up to the, to the storm that's coming and there's room for them in here if they will come in. They won't know unless people go. Pray for these unreached people groups. There's a website that you can Google, Google Joshua Project, full of interesting and helpful facts about peoples in parts of the world where there is no gospel access and lots of helpful tools that will give you daily prayer guides that, that, that help you both uh, learn more about these people and, and even just a process for knowing who to pray for when. Look up Joshua Project. Bring this into your prayer life and into your family devotions. Pray it more specifically, friends. Pray that the Lord will raise up more workers from our church who will be willing to go around the world. Maybe you've noticed that's an active prayer regularly prayed from this pulpit. As we gather week to week to worship, we, uh, prayer for new missionaries to go out from among us is part of an intentionally scheduled prayer, prayer agenda that we have. It would help us if you would pray that way as well in your own prayers. Give your money. One of the amazing things about being in a place with, with lots and lots of disposable income, a place like, like this city and this country and this time, is that the Lord has, has put into our hands resources that can be leveraged for a world mission that hasn't had resources like this to leverage for a long time. Look at what's happened without it. Imagine what we can do if we spend our money on the priorities God has given to us. Every year we do an end of missions offering here in our church. 
That'll be coming up in November and December of this year. Go ahead now and start praying about the sacrificial ways you might give to that offering. But you know, you can give specifically to missions through our church anytime. Every Sunday, you could, you could give a gift that designated for missions. It'll go straight into a special fund that we have where every dollar goes to supporting uh, our, our partners like our International Mission Board and other, other organizations that focus on training up local pastors in places where there's not much gospel access. And then, and then finally, friends, you can, you can be an active supporter. As an individual, you can take initiative for supporting the workers who have gone out from our church. Mitchell and Amanda will soon return to Turkey. Drew and Caroline Avery are almost finished with their French language instruction. Soon they'll be moving to Niger in Africa. And these friends, they are putting their lives and their families' lives on the line for the mission God has given to us. And we're the ones back here holding the rope for our friends, remembering to pray for them, but not just to pray for them, but to to remind them that we're praying for them. Their contact information is available to you guys. Maybe consider making for yourself a a built-in schedule for your prayer life where you pray for each of these workers, but then also send them a note to let them know that you did, what what you prayed for them, and, and maybe to ask if there are other ways that you could pray that you didn't know to. Friends, there's a lot of ways this could happen. But I think from the, from the first few verses of chapter 13, the most important thing we need to take is our responsibility. And we're not all going to take it up in the same way, but we are all responsible. The mission that God has given comes to the local church first. And from here we go. Please help us to do what God has called us to here at Edgefield. Now, there's a second character that I want to jump to now. A second character in the story of this, this expansion of the gospel to places where it, it, it is, hasn't been heard yet. It begins with a local church who sends its best. But then we also see the ambassador who's willing to go. We begin to see this in verse 4. These next few verses, uh, starting in verse 4, show us Saul and Barnabas making their first stops on the journey. They start out in Cyprus, a little island in the Mediterranean Sea. They begin in a coastal town of Salamis and preaching in the synagogues there. They, they move from place to place all through the whole island, Luke tells us, until they come to the capital city of Paphos. And here, the focus quickly narrows. It's like, it's like Luke, as film director, zooms in his camera to give us the one who will from this point be called Paul. And to show us what his work was all about. The way that that Luke introduces Paul to us as an ambassador for this gospel is to give us a contrast between Paul and another fellow who'd been about a work of his own in this same place. A guy named Bar-Jesus, which means son of God who saves. or, Or also called Elymas, meaning magician. And in a way, you hit this little account, and it seems like a, a bit of an aside, you know? Like, like, we're supposed to be talking about the mission and it moving forward, and, and, and here for just a, a few verses, we've got this random Bar-Jesus character who's inserted for just a second, who end ends up blinded, and then Paul moves on to go do the work that we know this chapter is really about. But I think that Luke intentionally gives us this contrast between Bar-Jesus, the false prophet, and Saul soon to be called Paul, because it's through this contrast that we can see Paul and his work most clearly. 
I mean, to see the simple beauty of Cinderella, you really do need those selfish stepsisters, don't you? To see the courage of Nathan Hale, you need the treacherous Benedict Arnold to compare him against. And to see the the work that Paul takes up here, you really do need to see Bar-Jesus and what he was all about. Let me show you. Let me show you the contrast between these two men. I think Luke is playing on on a very intentional irony by giving us the two names of this fellow. Bar-Jesus and Elymas, both of them applied to him. Again, Bar-Jesus means son of God who saves. So his name points to God as the source of salvation. Elymas means magician, sorcerer, a guy who takes charge of a situation and through his own proprietary access codes promises you connection to a power that you really want at work in your life. On the one hand, he's attaching himself to God and his power. He's claiming to be a prophet. He claims to represent him and offer access to him. But then on the other hand, as a sorcerer or a magician, he's really promoting himself as the key to all of it. And he's attached himself to this man of power. Sergius Paulus, verse 7 tells us, a man of intelligence, a ruler there in that city. Because what, what Elmas really wants is power himself. He wants to graft off this guy. And essentially what he's told him through his role as a magician is, you know what, I've got all the access codes. This is a salvation that depends on Elymas. His name means God saves. His posture says, I'm the one that you need. You won't find this anywhere else. He's the one he's offering. He's the one who benefits when you sign on. And I think that's what Paul means in verse 10 when he says, when he accuses uh, Elymas of making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. You know, instead of connecting people to the Lord, he's put himself in between. He's, he's given them something else to do in order to get to God. He's made it crooked. You can't just come straight to God. You've got to come through me and what I offer. You need my access codes, my proprietary knowledge. What you need, if you want God, is Elymas. And that's why in verse 8, Elymas is so quick to oppose Paul. You know, if what Elymas really cared about was, was getting God, the one God that is, to this proconsul who didn't know him, then he'd be happy for the help. Hey, Paul, yeah, join in me. I'm trying to get this guy bought in to, to, the, to the only God there is. Thanks for coming. But no, no, he's turfy about it because he is what he's offering. And Paul is his competition. That's why Paul confronts him here in the name of the Lord. And and you can see the irony in what happens to Elymas. This man who pretended to lead others, who claimed to see into what no one else could see as a sorcerer. He's blinded. And he's led around by the hand. Why tell this story? I think Luke has told us this story to help us see through this contrast what Paul was meant to do. What Paul's role was in this mission. Paul is not offering himself as some kind of shiny new access point. Paul isn't the one you need. He's not the one you're looking for. He's here to tell you about that one. That's his job. The proconsul believed when he saw what happened. Verse 12 tells us he believed when he saw what had occurred. But he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. We're going to look more closely in a minute at what we assume Paul was teaching here, just from seeing what he taught in his next stop. But 
assuming it's consistent. I think it's safe to say what he told this Roman official, what astonished this Roman official, is that the one he needs is not this phony bar Jesus, but Jesus the one and only. This one and only path into God's presence and power. The one and only connection you need to have God at the center of your life. So The first thing we see Paul doing on this very first missionary journey is clearing away useless barriers to the gospel. Is, is carving that straight path of the Lord to make sure it's clear. You don't have to go that way or this way or that way. It's right here. And it's Jesus. And that's it. In other words, it, it, it's, it's easy to see in this first taste we get of Paul's missionary work what we're going to see him doing all through his letters from here on out. Why does he write Galatians? To try to make straight again a path that had made, been made crooked. People had come into Galatia, not far from where he's about to go, saying not, not only do you need Jesus, you need this law and this law, this feast, this holy day, this circumcision. You need these things too. Jesus has packaged deal with, with other, other sources of help and salvation. Paul's saying, no! The path is straight. It's Jesus or nothing. It reminds me of what he says about himself and his own ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5. When I came to you, brothers, he says to them, I didn't come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Think about that compared to this Elmas guy who projected strength, proprietary access. I, I brought you nothing except Jesus, Paul says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Or what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There it is. Paul sees himself as an ambassador. Bar Jesus, he's a gatekeeper. You come through him and pay the toll or you don't come in. Paul is just an ambassador. I've got a message. It's not even mine. You shouldn't believe it because I tell you it. I don't have the authority to make it true. I can't stand behind all that it offers. But I am here as an ambassador from a king who can stand behind it all, who has. And he says to you, through Jesus, you can be reconciled. That's what an ambassador does. An ambassador is just, just a voice, just a spokesman. For someone else who's the one you really need. Offering press releases for that king. Offering to you peace with him if you'll have it. Now here's why we need to see Paul's role to understand our role this morning. For our local church to be faithful to the responsibility God has given to us. For getting the gospel to places that don't have it yet. It's really quite simple. We need from among us, from this room. We need ambassadors who are willing to go. Some of us will need to be willing 
to move our lives to places without access to Jesus. So that we, like Paul, can say, here's the one that you need. The proconsul was stuck with Bar-Jesus until Paul got there. Paul couldn't get there with Jesus until his church sent him out. But his church couldn't send him out until he was ready to go. Are you? I encouraged you earlier to make this prayer that the Lord would raise up new workers in our church, part of your regular prayer life. And I know for many of you it's already there. Thank you for that. Keep it up. But I wonder if you've considered this. Friend, friend you, you could be part of how God answers your own prayer. Would you be willing to pray not just that the Lord would raise up new workers from our church, but that the Lord would guide you as to whether you, like Paul, should go out from us? And what we, what we learn from this text is not just that some of us have to go, we, we also learn that those of us who do go have got to stay relentlessly focused on Jesus. When Mitchell and Amanda speak of Jesus in Turkey, what they offer cannot be themselves. It must be Jesus Christ as Lord and themselves as bondservants here to make the connection. When Drew and Caroline arrive in Niger, when they open their mouths and start speaking that new French language they've learned, what they'll speak of is not themselves, but Christ and Him crucified. The only hope anyone, anywhere will ever have. We must pray for them that the Lord will keep them confident in this message and protect them from the, the temptation that all of us have to put ourselves before Christ, to push our own agendas rather than His, to look to be something of what we're offering to others for the fleeting sense of importance that that gives us. Lord, protect them from that. Pray that for them with me, would you? And now, finally, I want to introduce you to one more character, the most important character of all in the story that Luke tells us of, of the gospel going out, this first missionary journey. We've talked about the, the, the local church who sends its best and the ambassador who's willing to go. Both of those characters have to be there. But neither of those characters has any legs to stand on. Neither of those characters has any reason to hope that what they're doing will bear any fruit apart from the Lord who's saving his people. Character number three, the Lord who's saving his people. Verse 13 gives us Paul and Barnabas moving locations, sailing from the island of Cyprus back to the mainland into a region known as Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. New location for them, but the same exact work they're already doing. And in this scene... And what happens uh, when they get to Antioch and Pisidia? We get our best look at the message that Paul took with him from place to place. Here it is. Here's the press release from this ambassador for this king who sent him. And, I mean, Emily read it for us already. You know, there is a lot going on here. I mean, it carries from verse 13 all the way basically through verse 52. The message and the response to it that Paul gets. 
And we've only got a handful of minutes left. So, so obviously the best we can do is look for the main theme in this sermon. That's what I want to do for you this morning. And I think what you'll see, without having to look too closely, is that the main theme in this sermon is about the main character in this entire story. The Lord whose relentless commitment to forgive and redeem a people who had sinned is the thread that ties together all of Israel's history and even the history of the world. Paul and Barnabas attend a normal gathering of the synagogue in this city once they've arrived. Someone is read from the law as they would have done each time they gathered. And then they send a message to these new brothers saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Jesus got an invitation like this one in his own ministry. It wasn't uncommon, apparently, for synagogues to welcome visitors who, who shared the same faith and the same sacred scriptures to, to encourage people based on what had just been read. And Paul did not miss his moment. As soon as he's given the opportunity, he rises and speaks, not just presumably of the specific text that was read that day, but of the whole thing. He basically summarizes the entire Hebrew Bible in just a few verses. And at the center of everything that's happening is God at work. God is the one who's working, and Jesus is the one that he's working toward. Just follow the verbs with me, okay? You're going to want to have your Bible open in front of you. That's really important, especially right now. Follow these verbs with me so you can see what, what Paul wants us to see about what God is up to. In verse 17, it's the God of this people Israel who chose our fathers. It's God who made them great during their stay in the land of Egypt. It's God who with uplifted arm led them out of it. God is the one who's working. Verse 18, it is God who put up with them in the wilderness. Don't you love that? Verse 19, it is God who gave them an inheritance. Verse 20, it is God who gave them judges, men who helped lead them deliver them from, from trouble and also restore something of, of a God-centered life to the people in, 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 in waves during that period of their history. God gave them those judges. Verse 21, it is God who gave them a king when they asked for one. Verse 22, it's God who removed their king, Saul, and God who raised up David. Verse 23, it is God who brought to Israel a savior just as he promised. Verse 26, it is God who sent this message of salvation. Verse 27 and through 29, it's, it's God who fulfilled this plan that he has through the Jews in Jesus' death. They didn't even know what they were doing. But they're fulfilling a plan he had, he had made long ago. A plan he had promised that he'd written about already in the, old, in the scriptures of the Old Testament. It's God who fulfilled every one of his purposes through Jesus' death. And in verse 30, it is God who raised him from the dead. Verse 32 and 33 God fulfilled what was promised to the fathers. In these sections talking about David, these promises that came through David in the Psalms, they're ultimately, he says, about Jesus. David served his purpose. He fell asleep. He was laid with his fathers. And he saw corruption. In other words, his body decayed just like everybody else's. But the one whom God raised up did not see corruption. You see the thread. All through Israel's history, God is at work. He's the one behind all of it. And Jesus is the point of all of it. He's the culmination of all of it. Now, perhaps the most important thing to notice about this sermon Paul preaches, about this work that God is doing, comes in verse 38. After all this, 
after all that God has been doing for century after century after century through the ups and downs of Israel's history. Therefore, through this man who came and died and rose, verse 38, forgiveness is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. How about that? Think about this, friends. All of history is orchestrated by the Lord. All of history is aimed at his purpose. He's pursued his purpose with this relentless and unyielding commitment that carries him all the way through it. It reminds me a lot of the Olympic backstories we're forced to confront if you have any interest in watching the competitions at this time of year. I love the games, always have. My wife makes fun of me for my passion for the games. But I don't love the backstories, I'll be honest. Uh, it, it seems like you've got to sit through half an hour of somebody's sob story before you can actually watch them run for the gold in the next, in the next competition. But, but one thing that I do notice about these Olympic backstories is the relentless grit and determination that each of these athletes possesses. It's almost like... From the very moment their parents decided that they were going to force them to do this at two years old, through all the ups and downs that come to every athlete's progress, uh, they, were, they were focused on this moment where they compete for the goal. All of it. Everything else in their life was sacrificed or included to set them up for this chance to compete in a synchronized dancing routine. Now, seriously. The grit and the follow-through of these, these athletes is amazing through all the ups and downs and the year after year. And I, I think it's something like what, what Paul is describing here to God. That in, in, on an unimaginably larger scale, all of history, on a scale that, that, that's, that's as big as all of history and as wide as all the world, at the end of it all, the goal towards which God is aiming all things was not some gold medal, but the opportunity to offer forgiveness to anyone from everywhere. This is what he's doing in the world. A forgiveness to us for the brokenness we've brought into our relationship with him. Who would do that? Friend, here are the encouragements we need this morning. From what Paul tells us, this character is doing in the world. The first encouragement you need is to come to him for forgiveness. Do you see it here? What binds history together? Like an unbreakable cable of steel is God's relentless work to make you forgivable. And when you come to him for forgiveness... You're not asking for too much. You're not wearing out your welcome. You're not imposing on him, no matter how much forgiveness you need. You are giving him the joy that was set before him as he, the Son of God, faced death willingly and without wavering. You're fulfilling the desire that sent the Son of God to earth in the first place. The desire that he lived and died for. He wants you to come to him for forgiveness. I mean, think about it as a, as a chef who loves to cook for friends. They don't go to all that trouble to have the food look pretty on a plate. The chef wants you to feast. That's what it was all for. 
That's why they put the time and effort into making this meal. They want you to enjoy it. And when you do, you're not adding to their burden. The burden has already been lifted and carried and placed here for you to enjoy. It doesn't hurt them. It doesn't add to them. It doesn't make them weary of you for you to sit down and feast. That's what makes it worth it. And when Jesus faced the cross for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him was his opportunity to forgive you when you come. So come. And not only are we encouraged to come to him for forgiveness, we're also encouraged to trust him to carry out his work that he's doing through us. And we've tried to sh- I've tried to show, just through this quick pass over the sermon, just through the, the, the merest highlights, that, that Paul wants us to see God is the one who's working all through history. That he's put, so, he's, put, he's put himself into this through the coming of his son. And he's not going to let this go unfinished. And I think that, that Paul needed this when you see, even just in this own example, how, many, how alienating this message was, how many people didn't want it, how they, they actually start to persecute him because of the message that he gave. When you realize how big the scale of this mission is, that it's supposed to go to all the ends of the earth, and, and here you are, Paul, taking the first steps up the side of this Everest-like mountain. How do you even take that first step when you know not everybody even wants this, and I could never possibly take this to the ends of the world. It just seems so overwhelming. How do you, how do, you do anything knowing that that's what stands against you? If you're, if you're Paul. I think we get a little piece of his confidence in verse 48. Already this message has been controversial, but when the Gentiles heard this, Luke tells us, they began rejoicing. And glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed. God, in this moment, saved his people. He knew exactly what he was doing. About 15 years ago, I had the chance to travel through parts of Central Asia with a guy who's basically a living legend in leadership of the IMB over that region. This will be a story many of you have heard before, but it reminds me, I'm reminded of that story every time I see an example like this one of the scale of this thing that we're given to do and of the stakes that, that, are, that, are, that are there and of the, the intensity of the opposition to it. We traveled together uh, through... Uh, through Parts of Turkey, his, his, his region that he was over included most of Turkey, parts of Russia, all the Stan countries, part of northwest China. We traveled together through several of these countries where he was visiting his workers. This, this territory is just unbelievably vast. So many of these areas are unimaginably remote until you get there, and it took you 30-something hours to do so. There are huge cultural and language barriers all around the work that goes on in this part of the world. And fewer than, at the time anyway, fewer than one in a thousand people living all over this region were Christians. Where we had workers there already, the work moves really, really slowly. Conversions are not common. Persecution is intense. And he told me, as we travel together, 
You can't make it very long in this region unless you have a strong belief in the providence of God. My people, he said, believe God is sovereign. That the same God who's willing to forgive anyone from anywhere is able to save anyone from anywhere. There is no barrier that he cannot cross. And he's doing it. They can carry on with their work there against all those odds, even when it's hard and the fruit seems scarce because they trust him to carry on his work through them. And we can too. We must or we'll never have the strength to take it up in the first place. Will you pray with me now that the Lord will give us the confidence we need to carry on the work that he's called us to do? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for doing everything through Jesus that must be done for us to be forgivable. We have no other hope but him. And now we know you've charged us with making that hope available to anybody that we can get to. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful to what you've called us to do and to seek out opportunities to go wherever we can, whenever we can, however we can. We pray that you would make us a mission-minded congregation that these themes from this text will filter down through our conversations with each other and make their way into our prayer lives and that you will raise up, even now, from this room, people who will go on our behalf. And we pray that you would help all of us to feel the weight of our responsibility and to be faithful to you in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.